as odd as it may sound or as maybe uncomfortable as it might make us feel, ever since there has been a Christianity, Christians have struggled with the temptation of walking away from Jesus. Sounds very strange, doesn't it? Christians walking away from Christ. It's a contradiction. But once again, ever since there's been a Christianity, it's been a temptation for people who profess to be Christians to walk away from Christ. In fact, if you recall, Jesus himself, when he was with his inner circle of disciples, said to them in John chapter 6, do you want to go away also? Sometimes it's because of social pressure. Sometimes it's because of religious pressure. Sometimes it's because of immaturity. And the list could go on regarding reasons. But it's something that Christians have struggled with and still struggle with today. We feel the pressure for that for whatever reason. And we see people feel the pressure for whatever reason. And there is this temptation to no longer follow after Jesus. And it's problematic. Thankfully, the Bible talks about this so that we don't get caught off guard and think, oh no, this is the first time this has ever happened and we don't know what to do. And thankfully, in the New Testament, we have this book that we call Hebrews because it addresses this very matter. And most famously, perhaps, is the sixth chapter of Hebrews, which is where we are this morning. Addressing this matter of people feeling tempted to walk away, having once professed faith in Jesus. In Hebrews 6, we, we find uh, two emphases. Okay? The first eight verses, there is this call to grow up spiritually. It's rather abrasive. It's forceful. Uh, the pastoral tone is one of very, uh, it's very strong. You can capture the idea of the first eight verses by saying, grow up. That's how you handle this matter. If you would be spiritually mature, you would be not so tempted. You'd understand the work of Christ better, so you wouldn't even entertain the other. And then the second emphasis in Hebrews chapter 6 is in verses 9 to 20. And if you want to make it real simple, it's a call to persevere. It's a call to continue. It's a call to persevere. And the pastoral tone in the second part? isn't this intense sort of in-your-face thing that's in the first part. It's much warmer. It's much more encouraging. It makes me think of that old saying that the pastor's job is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Uh, it doesn't fit exactly here, but it came to my mind, so I said it. Sorry. Um, but I will say on purpose that there is this dual emphasis. There's a place for both. Grow up. And persevere, I know you can, kind of thing. And we'll, we'll sense both of those, I think, this morning as we deal with this hard issue of people who profess to believe in Christ and then they find themselves tempted to walk away. I'm, I'm praying and hoping that it's, this passage serves as a catalyst for us church-wide and for us as individuals that we would find ourselves wanting to grow up spiritually. And that we would also find ourselves wanting, having seen how great Christ is, and to see the great promises of God, wanting to persevere. So in a sense, we're afraid because we don't want to become apostate. 
But in another sense, it's not about fear. It's about the greatness and the sureness of salvation in Christ. And so we'll see it from both sides. Well, we have a lot of work to do if we're doing the whole chapter. And so let's get down to business, so to speak, and begin looking at this call to grow up. Beginning in verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. What do you mean, author of Hebrews? Well, he explains what he means if we keep reading. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, or your marginal note might say baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we'll pause there for a moment. The idea is you need to not be in a place where you have to keep going over the ABCs. You need to understand Christ and His work so well, which is what the first five chapters have been about, that we don't have to keep going over these basic things. Now, we're not going to take the time to unpack the meaning of each one of these statements, foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God. But what we will do is see, it's talking about basics. It's talking about the basic things of Christianity and Christian living, everything from repentance to the resurrection. I mean, these are the things we tell people about right away. So someone says they trust in Christ, they believe in Christ, what do we do? We take them to the basics. We want to help them get grounded in these basic things. We want to send them to a fundamentals of the faith class so they can get some of these basic Christian doctrines ironed out. And, and, and if you're a Christian, it shouldn't take you very long to understand resurrection. Not just Christ's resurrection, but your coming resurrection. And if you're a Christian, it shouldn't take you very long to understand these basic things. You, you basically know how it works. And so he's calling them here to, to, he's rebuking them in essence, because they, they keep going back to these ABCs, they can't understand even the ABCs. Now, why can't they understand the ABCs? Well, it's because they, they're having a hard time understanding the cross, which is why we have Hebrews. What has Hebrews been doing over and over again? It's talking about the basic, basic, basic reality of Christianity, and it's all the work of Christ, and He has done everything, and He is our perfect high priest, and He is our perfect atonement. He is God's final and last word and culminating, climaxing word. And remember, and you all know this, if you understand that, it settles a lot of questions about baptism. It settles a lot of questions about coming resurrection. It settles a lot of questions, period. But what these immature Christians are doing is every time they hear some new doctrine, every time a new book gets published and put out at the Christian bookstore or whatever it might be, all of a sudden they're, they're, they're swayed and they're wooed here and there. To borrow from Paul, they're tossed by every wind of doctrine. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, look, grow up already. And the key to growing up already is understanding what I've been teaching you in the book of Hebrews, which is it's all about the work of Christ. We shouldn't have to keep going over this. And so there's a definite sting involved in all of this. Now, if you want to capture the essence of what he's getting at even a little bit better, you'll go back to chapter 5 toward the end there. Remember, we have added the chapter divisions for convenience 
and really he's he's not picked up a new idea in chapter six. This started back in chapter five, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again about the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he is a child, you can just put your finger there for a moment. We'll keep reading in a moment as well. When we were in chapter 5, we talked a little bit about this. They're unskilled in the word of righteousness, which is another way of saying they're unskilled in the gospel. They don't get it. They don't understand how righteousness works, that God is righteous, that he requires righteousness, which is just the word for justice. Uh, uh, he requires adherence to his law, but we're lawbreakers, we're unrighteous. And so what happens? Christ comes and lives a perfect life of obedience to the law and becomes our righteousness by faith. These are just basic, basic things that every Christian should understand. But these Christians aren't really understanding that, so they're into all these different doctrines and they're confused about the ABCs of the faith. And he's rebuking them for that. Verse 14 of chapter 5 says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. According to the context, good and evil as it would relate to the word of righteousness, as it would relate to the gospel. And so the opening verses of chapter 6, if you want to go ahead and go back there, they're, they're beckoning us. They're beckoning the original hearers to maturity. Maturity in the gospel so that they can understand so they can comprehend so that they can grow up what have we been learning in hebrews we've been learning about how jesus is god's last word we've been learning in hebrews that he is the eternal son unique we've been learning again and again that he's a human being he became a human being so he could become a priest for us so he could become our righteousness got to understand these things the basics so that we can understand the other basics and so we can be growing spiritually and he's challenging them because that is not going on in their lives christians needing to grow and to grow up maybe a good test for this would be just to ask someone ask joe or sally christian sorry if your name is joe or sally there's two names that came to mind good names Ask Garden Variety Christian, what is the atonement? Now, I think most of you here today could say atonement means satisfaction. Um, it means to satisfy. It means to appease. Some of you upper class men say, well, a synonym is propitiation. All right, you can sit at the front of the room. Most of you have a grasp of what atonement means. But it's pretty interesting if you ask just somebody who says they're a Christian to, to explain what the atonement is. The kind of funky answers you're going to get. Based upon the book of Hebrews, that's ABC stuff. Every Christian should be able to say, atonement is satisfaction 
for sin. To be able to at least give the basics of God is angry with sin. He's a just and righteous God. And so what he does is he's also loving and gracious. And so he sends his son to atone for our sins. To satisfy the just wrath of God. This is gospel. This is basic. This isn't complicated for upper class men. This is basic. We should understand these things. We should get these things. In fact, we should get them so well that when some new strange kind of thing comes along that's in contradiction to these things, we say, that's not right. That's not biblical. That's not the right idea. And so he's really making this an issue. It's kind of interesting as well. When I think about the book of Hebrews, I think of the book of Hebrews as intimidating. Thinking, man, I'm going to preach through Hebrews. Scary, complex, complicated. Isn't it interesting that these complicated, complex, profound things we've been learning, like in the first five chapters, are considered to be the basics? But when you stop and think about it, and I realize there's a cultural gap, and there's a language gap, and there's a time gap, and that does make things hard, no doubt. But when you bridge those things, really, Hebrews is pretty easy. Because it's really about one thing. It's about the perfect work of Jesus Christ, isn't it? That's what we've been seeing again and again. That He is the eternal Son of God. That He became one of us. That He is our faithful high priest. That His work is finished, complete, once and for all. And in Him we find our only hope. That's what Hebrews is about. But it's amazing how many times professing Christians don't really know what the gospel is. And it's no wonder Hebrews is so overwhelming. And it's no wonder we're into all these other things. And then it's no wonder we find ourselves all the more wooed away by false doctrines. And it's no wonder so many become, to use that technical word, apostate. Because what are you thinking in your mind? You're thinking, if they only understood, what are, what are they doing? This doesn't even make sense. If they only got this. So let's get it. Let's be mature. Let's grow. I think it's also kind of interesting. One of the major issues in the book of Hebrews is you have Christians. Yes, they're first century Christians. Yes, they're Hebrew Christians. But you have Christians who don't understand how the Old Testament works. And I think we're probably all guilty of that to one degree or another. But that's a major issue for the writer of Hebrews. He is trying to help his readers, his hearers, understand how the Old Testament works as it relates to Jesus. And he's referring to this as some, some kind of basics. <laughs> Motivates me all the more to try to understand how the Old Testament works in relationship to Jesus because this is something that even new Christians are supposed to understand. Because by the way, if you don't understand how the Old Testament works in relationship to Jesus, it's no wonder you're so apt to maybe go follow something else. Because you don't understand that those things were types and shadows ready to find fulfillment in Christ. And if you don't understand that, you're going to go back to the types and shadows. I'm already giving you way more than first hour got, so you should feel really privileged. We're going to take a second offering. <laughs> No, that just means I better hurry up or we're going to run out of time. That's probably how that works. 
Okay, with this in mind, he says in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. Kind of a strange, awkward statement to throw in there. Um, in light of, I'm going to help you with this. And this I'll do if God permits. And, and, and you're going to see this. And this will happen if God permits. He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. And uh, just interesting that he does that here. But now we're ready. Now we're ready to have our seatbelts fastened. Now we're ready to, to get some shock into our system in verse 4. For it is impossible. I'm telling you to grow up. I'm telling you to mature. You better get motivated because now I'm going to use a, a scare tactic. For it is impossible, stated forcefully, emphatically, it is impossible. And then if you would, put your finger down on verse 6, and you can connect the dots, connect the line together. For it is impossible, verse 6, after the comma, to restore them again to repentance. We'll pick up the stuff in the middle in just a moment, but that's the, the idea right away. You better grow up because it is impossible to restore certain people to repentance. He's referring to those who walk away from the faith. You better pay close attention, he's saying, because if people do walk away, they become apostate. It is impossible for them to be reconciled to God. Strong words. Very strong words. Grow up because if you don't and you're led astray from the sufficient Christ, there is nothing else for you. There's no other way of salvation. There's no other way of atonement. You're smoked. It's impossible for restoration. Pretty intense. Now let's pick up the stuff in between. For it is impossible... And then he says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, this brief comment used for, uh, it's initiation language. They've once been enlightened. The, the, the light has gone on, so to speak, and they're like, oh, I need a savior. Sometimes, some even think he's referring to the, the first act of initiation once someone professes faith in Christ, which would be baptism. Could be, it doesn't say that. I wouldn't want to take a huge stand either way, but it could be who have tasted the heavenly gift, tasted as in experienced themselves. This is not watching the food network. This is eating the food. They've actually tasted. They've, they've actually experienced authentic Christianity on one level. Keep going. And some think that's communion, by the way. He doesn't say that. Could be. Wouldn't want to force it. And have shared in the Holy Spirit what might that be? On the most general level, and I'll talk about why momentarily, you've shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, one thing's for sure, you don't even have to be a true Christian to share in the Holy Spirit in this sense. If you are at Omaha Bible Church and you come here, you're sharing in the Holy Spirit in that you have believers and they're gifted and they will serve you. And the more you become part of that community, the more you will share in the Holy Spirit in the sense that you will benefit from. You will be ministered to. You will be served. You don't even have, even have to actually be a Christian and you'll get benefits from the Holy Spirit in a general sense. Verse 5, And have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. 
right now, you could be a Christian or not a Christian, and you are tasting, you are experiencing the goodness of the Word of God because you are hearing it preached and explained. You're benefiting and the powers of the age to come, which just fascinates me that that's even in here, and the powers of the age to come. If he's talking about church life, which the context and the flow seem to indicate, church life gives us a taste or a sample, an experience of the powers of the age to come. I'd like to talk about that on a different Sunday, just to explore that a little bit and to mind that, that, that what we experience in the here and now as Christians in, in church community is something of the foretaste of that which we will experience in eternity. Yeah, but we don't really need church. Sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. (laughs) I'd like to talk about that some other time in that kind of context. It is impossible for those who have experienced all of these things and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Then it says, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. And all the air in the room is gone. So someone professes Christ, becomes part of the community of believers, part of the church life, benefiting from church life, benefiting from all of these things. And the conclusion is, I think I'll go elsewhere. I think I'll go it alone. I don't really need that Jesus. And he's saying, it is impossible for it to be okay between you and God. And you know what you're doing? You're crucifying again the Son of God. Because by the way, if He's not enough to take care of your reconciliation with God, then certainly then there needs to be more atonement. There needs to be something else. He needs to do something more. Someone needs to do something more. And in effect, what you're doing is you're re-crucifying Him. You're saying Jesus Christ isn't sufficient if you walk away from Him. And that's the most awful thing to imagine, especially what we've been learning in the light of the book of Hebrews, where it keeps talking about it, and it's going to keep talking about it once for all, once for all, sat down, finished, atoned for, satisfied. And you say, well, that's not enough for me. I just ain't feeling it. Even though God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Eh, you could take it or leave it. Uh, even this sin business you talk about in atonement, and to me it seems more like a, a human social construct uh, developed to manipulate people. I'm not really buying it. You know, I believe in God and everything, but this whole atonement thing, and you're a little too atonement-centered, and it's just not really for me. Whether you realize it or not, you are crucifying again the Son of God because you're saying sin doesn't even exist. Well, what an idiot Jesus is then who came to give His life as a ransom for many. Substitutionary atonement talk. 
and then he's in contempt. He is an idiot. So real strong language directed against apostates. It's interesting the way he's talking, though. He's not pointing the finger at those he's talking to right in the here and now. He's talking about those folks that we all know. Those folks that we've known before who seem to be such a part of the group, who seem to just show all the evidences and, and, and they've gone away. And let me tell you about such people, he's saying. Therefore, for you, be motivated to grow spiritually and understand the gospel and to understand the atoning work of Christ and to understand the righteousness of Christ and understand because to go elsewhere is to go to the unthinkable. To go elsewhere is to go nowhere because there's nowhere else to go because we're talking about the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's an insult to the highest degree to consider it to be otherwise. Remember in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in these last days, the culminating high point of God's revelation, He's spoken to us through His Son. No, I don't need Him. It's no wonder He says the contempt thing here. Then in verse 7, we have a little illustration. Seven and eight, he illustrates this with a simple analogy for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So some in the audience said, pastor, I like it when you tell stories. So he gave him a story. Real light-hearted story. In case you're not getting it, let me just explain it this way. It's like the rain that falls. The rain is good. It's a blessing. But the response can be different. The gospel goes. Christ is the same. And the response is different. But the response needs to be the right response. Or it means judgment. That's the telling part. Think about this in the first century. It's easier that way. You're a professing Christian. And it was exciting at the beginning because you had some friends and it made sense, connected dots for you. But you know, it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian, especially Palestine, first century, where the whole culture is set up to be Jewish. And it's pretty hard, especially getting to be around holiday time now. It's pretty hard when uh, you don't get invited to the meal. And you know when it's really, really hard when it's Passover. And it's like one big, giant, amazing party. And all your relatives come and your friends come and everybody is flooding into Jerusalem. And it's awesome. And you have such good childhood memories of all of these things going on. And you're not only not invited, but someone even said that, someone else said that you're dead to the family. Or maybe you are invited, but you're ostracized. 
You can just imagine what it's like. And imagine what it's like to go from having all of this amazing sensory overload, Passover, Day of Atonement, first century, in Jerusalem, and there's all of this stuff going on, and you can see the temple. Not only that, you can see the priest. Not only that, you can see the animals. And you know what? Uh, you say, I'm a visual learner. I kind of like auditory over you know, stimulation here. You can hear the sheep. And you know what that's about? You know that's about atonement. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know, I kind of long for those days. Because you know what I have? I meet with some Christians in their flat. And we read the Old Testament. And that's about it. And we sing songs and we break bread. But life is hard. I don't even have a job anymore because I'm a professing Christian. I'm not sure how to provide for my family. You know, the list could go on and on and on. In the book of Hebrews, though, we've been seeing time and time again that Jesus is the perfect high priest. He is the one who is seated as a result of finishing his work. That he is worth it. That he has boldly gone before the throne of God, having satisfied the justice of God, and he is seated there at the right hand of God, interceding on behalf of everyone who would believe in him. But you still might be struggling, thinking, you know, it was just easier when I could see the priest. And we put it into our century. Some of you miss the smells and the bells. You miss a mediator that you could actually see with your eyes. I can see that. I have some fond childhood memories of even being in church. When I was too young to take communion, the pastor would put his hand kind of on my head. And, you know, it just kind of felt good. It was just kind of warm. And you think, that was kind of weird. I kind of like that. I kind of like communion. And I remember when the pastor would say that you are forgiven. I could hear from a real human being say to me, by the power given to me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now declare unto you the entire forgiveness of your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You can see where there's a temptation. Some of you have no religious background and you might just have a temptation to walk away from Christ for other reasons. My health is bad. If God loved me, why would He have my health be bad? Uh, relationships aren't so good. If God loved me, why would I have... Why wouldn't I have better relationships? I mean, the list could go on. Hebrews keeps telling us, we have a greater priest. We have a high priest who is in the throne room of God. He satisfied the wrath of God never to be propitiated again. He can be trusted. He uh, understands our weaknesses. He is sufficient. 
And now things, when push comes to shove, the writer of Hebrews says, and if you go somewhere else for your mediatorship, there is no hope for you because you are crucifying again the Son of God and He is contemptible. He is an idiot. Because if you see Him for what He has done, as Hebrews gives Him to us, and you say, I'll go somewhere else for my standing before God, you're saying He didn't do it, and He was, quite frankly, a whack job. The writer to Hebrews is saying, don't do it. Grow up spiritually. Get off the milk. Stop sucking your thumb. If you could understand the meaning of the righteousness of Christ and the atoning work of Christ, grow spiritually so you don't end up like those other people that you know about. And I want to take this now church-wide and say, this is not only would apply to us individually, but I would want to have a church with a ministry that thinks like that. That we're not afraid to have explanation of what atonement means. Explanation of what it means to have Christ's righteousness. That we would take to heart Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. And these kinds of things. Don't go backward. I think of renting a car at the airport and you rent the car and you drive over those spikes. You know those spikes. I'm always afraid that it's the wrong way and I'm going the wrong way. And I'm in trouble. You drive over the spikes and there are these big signs. Do not back up. Will cause severe tire damage. Well, you go to embracing Christ for your salvation. There's a giant sign there that says, Do not back up. Will cause severe spiritual damage. Don't go backward. If you would go to chapter three, we just have a little bit of uh, a little bit of housekeeping to do before we move on. I don't want to give give it a lot of attention, um, but Hebrews six is one of the more controversial passages in the Bible, not because of the things we've been talking about, amazingly enough, but because there's a lot of debate about whether or not a true Christian can lose their salvation or not, and Hebrews six is really the really the, the flashpoint for the whole thing. Um, I don't think that's the emphasis of the writer. Um, I think the emphasis is on a different syllable. Okay, so I, I haven't gone there for a big emphasis. We could talk on a whole Sunday about perseverance of the, fa- uh, of the saints. We could talk a whole Sunday about eternal security and those kinds of things. I haven't made it an emphasis here because I, I think it's not really the emphasis. But I, I want to do a good job in at least mentioning it before we move on. I think what's really important, and you could even write in the margin of chapter 6, is understanding the flow of the book and the bigger context. And if you go to chapter 3, verse 14, I think it really helps you. I don't think if you're truly a Christian, you can stop being a Christian. If you truly are saved, you can't lose your salvation And in chapter 3, verse 14, we, we have some help. Okay, Hebrews has a bunch of different warnings, and we've already heard these warnings, and now it's coming up again in chapter 6. But when we heard it in chapter 3, in verse 14, we heard these words. For we have come to share in Christ, comma, 
if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's an important verse in understanding the theology of the book of Hebrews. If we indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. A genuine Christian holds their Christianity, if you will, firm to the end. It's not that they lose their salvation. Now I am going to go outside of Hebrews, which I was slow to do. It's that those who went out from us were never really of us. 1 John 2.19 Or like the four soils in Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, I think it is. The word goes out and there are different responses. Some of the responses are positive even for a time, but they're not lastingly positive. And now we could go even full-blown. We could go to John chapter 10. I'm just going to quickly reference John 10 and what Jesus says in verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29 says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And the list could go on when it comes to passages that teach if you're a Christian, genuinely a Christian, you can't lose what you have. But again, the emphasis in Hebrews 6 is there are those who benefit from, who experience, who are part of the church family and who conclude it's not for me and they walk away and there's no more sacrifice for them. There's nothing more that can be done. There's no more solution to their sins because Jesus is the only solution to their sins. And the emphasis is that you should be afraid. That you should stop sucking your spiritual thumb. And you should stop drinking only milk. And you should know what the gospel is. And you should understand the work of Christ so that you're not tossed here and there by all of these other things. And you get it. And you can move on to maturity. An apostate is one who's never been a Christian. But that doesn't mean they haven't experienced lots of Christian things. Now we move on to something optimistic. That's the hardcore, sort of in-your-face, grow-up-already kind of emphasis. Now we have this optimistic push to persevere. Okay, fear tactics, okay, yeah, that's there. But now we have this sort of motivation in, in what is good and right. And let me just give you the overview to begin with. It's now to say Jesus Christ is so sufficient. He is our all in all. God's unfailing promise of redemption is bound up in him. Now it's not because of fear you don't become an apostate. It's because of the pleasure of it all. I am so secure if I'm truly in Christ that I want to go ahead and move ahead and be motivated and not be a slacker. And and I want to have an appetite for meat and I want to press on and I want to even endure hardships because salvation in Christ is so grand. And so that's what we see here. Look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, this harsh way that he's been speaking in, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, 
Notice he's gone from third person talking about apostates outside. He's now going to second person talking about in the here and now. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Lots of people say, now we see the shepherd's heart of the writer of Hebrews. And I say, scratch that. We saw the shepherd's heart in the first part. We just saw a different kind of shepherding. (laughs) Okay? Now we see the warm, encouraging side. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. Hey, when I look around and I see what's happening, I understand you're immature and I understand you've been confused about some things. And so I've exhorted you, but I also understand that there's been a lot of fruit that's evident that you have a reputation for serving out of love for God because you understand he loved you. And not only do you have a reputation for doing that in the past, it's even in the here and now. So let me affirm, let me encourage you in this. And so then in verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Oh, we're talking about apostate. No, now we're talking about this full assurance of hope. That's what I want each one of you to have and for it to be lasting, not temporary, all the way to the very end. Ah, it's so good because you get the cross, because you get the work of Christ, that you would have this full, what does he say? Full assurance of hope until the end. I love the strong way he puts it, the sure way he puts it. Strong assurance of hope until the end. And it's not 21st century westernized hope in hope. Hope in our language has a, at least a tinge, if not a, a big tinge of doubt in it. If you, if you say to someone, you say, well, do, do, have your sins been atoned for? Once you explain atonement, their response oftentimes is going to be, I hope so. The writer to Hebrews would not use hope like that. He's not using hope like that here. Hope, the full assurance of, of, of the hope of things to come. This, this assurance, this certainty that he has. And let me ask you this really important question I hope you know the answer to. If hope is this confidence, this assurance that's been established, what's it based upon? Is this hope based upon hope? Just like we have faith in faith? Is this hope based upon what we do? No, he's calling them to action, but this assurance, this, this, this hope is based upon something. What's it based upon? Hint. <laughs> it's like behind me looming large. This hope, this Christian hope is based upon the outside of you objective, historic act that happened one Friday afternoon. It's based upon the work of Christ. 
It's based upon what he has done. And since it's accomplished, not just on a Friday afternoon, because it went on beyond that to the point we were learning in the book of Hebrews, he is now seated at the right hand of the father interceding on your behalf. But that's still objective work being done by another who is Christ. Now you can have a confidence because it's not confidence in you and it's not confidence in confidence, which is crazy. So I love every opportunity to emphasize that as we see here. Full assurance of hope until the end. That's what he's wishing and hoping for every single Christian. And such hope has an effect. Look at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There's so much here, man. What's that thing that they do? It's like some magnetic thing where it stops all electricity. You know, maybe it's just on 24. I don't know. But we need one of those so that the clock stops because I just want to talk about this stuff. <laughs> but we'd be in the dark. We have cell phones. We could do it anyway. Um, I have no idea what I was going to talk about, but I was excited. <laughs> so that you won't be sluggish. So you can try to motivate people and you just need to try harder. Just get with it and you've got to obey the law of God or he'll never accept you. And so you just need to try harder, give more, do more, follow these laws and principles. Because if you tell people, if you let the cat out of the bag that Jesus did it all, man, there are going to be a bunch of slackers. So maybe Jesus did 99% and let's tell people that they've got to bridge the gap and salvation is by faith and what you do. He's using the opposite kind of logic. I want you to so get the finished work of Christ that it causes you to have such a firm hope, confidence in Him that it has this kind of effect that you're not a slacker, that you're not sluggish, that you're motivated beyond motivated to do the right thing and to excel even more. That's the notion in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And we're going to get there and we get to chapter 11, but I'll just give you the preview. You've got all that, those people in chapter 11, the hall of faith, we call it. The thing that characterizes those believers in chapter 12 is they went through difficult times including persecution, and yet they had a faith that persevered because they knew that they could trust God and His promises. Okay, They they help us understand chapter 3. They help us understand chapter 6. I can't wait till we get to the hall of faith. And what we're not going to emphasize is each one of them and how great they were, but we're going to emphasize they're great in the sense that they trusted in a great God. And so let's follow their example. And when the going gets tough, don't walk off the track. Remember other believers who've gone before you through difficulty and they understood that God is trustworthy. And so they trusted him through the difficulty. That's what we're going to see when we get to chapter 11. But for now, by way of preview, he tells us about Abraham. And by the way, when he says promises, I just drew some lines at least that might help you. When he says promises at the end of verse 12, um, he's talking about the promises of salvation. If you go back to chapter 9 at the very end, the last word is salvation. 
And he's talking about salvation promises. So let's understand that we want to inherit those things and that is motivating. Okay, now let's go on, learn about Abraham. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 13. Do we all know about Abraham? Most of you know about Abraham, but some of you don't, okay? Just know this. Abraham, according to the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 12, is a nobody. However, God makes a promise to a nobody to make him a somebody. To make him extraordinary and to make him great in that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. The technical phraseology is Abrahamic covenant. Okay? God's going to show his great grace and his great power by doing this through Abraham. And then we start seeing the dots connected in the New Testament. And we see Jesus being the one who's going to bring all of this to fulfillment. Okay, so you just need to know if you're new to the Bible, Abraham is not just some dude. Well, actually he was. He's, he's a flunky. Okay? But God chooses him and through him, even though his circumstances looked bankrupt, and they were, God chose to bless him greatly extraordinarily and through him he would bless the whole world and ultimately that finds its fulfillment in christ he's connecting lots of dots for us here in the book of hebrews tying old testament and new testament together so with that in mind verse 13 for when god made a promise to abraham he's referring to genesis 22 verses 15 to 19 here we won't take the time to read it but when god makes this promise to abraham since he had no greater No one greater by whom to swear, he's talking about God swearing, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. There's God under oath. It's kind of interesting though, isn't it? He had no one greater by whom to swear. We understand this. If you're going to swear and, and give testimony or make it, take an oath, you swear by something greater than you. And even sometimes today we still see someone put their hand on a Bible. Swearing by something greater than themselves, by their own testimony. Or, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my children's grave. That's what Michael Corleone said. I swear on something great. And here we see, God swears on something great. But you know what? God couldn't find anything great to swear on. Because there's no one greater than Him. And yes, indeed, there are things God can't do. This would be one of them. God cannot swear upon something greater than himself because there's no one greater. And so what do we see here? And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. I love the sound of that. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things. So now we have his character and his promise in which it is impossible for God to lie. We. Now it's we. We like Abraham. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Learn from Abraham. 
Be like Abraham. Not, oh, he's so great, he's going to earn the favor of God all by his lonesome. No, be like Abraham in that God makes this great promise based upon his own character and based upon his own promise, this oath that he takes. And Abraham goes, I think I'll believe him. Take him at his word and trust in him. Because think about it, folks. For God to speak under oath based upon his own person as God, based upon his own promise, for Abraham not to trust him would be the stupidest thing in the world. And in our context, we have Abraham doing this in the context of difficulty. In your context, in your world of difficulty, whatever kind it is, remember the great character of God, remember the great promises of God, and keep trusting in Him, the ultimate fulfillment of His promise in His Son. Learn that from Abraham. I liked what one person had to say about this. One of the things that helps us in perseverance is God's condescending oath for us to bolster our shabby faith. What's God doing taking an oath? Just to help us. Just above and beyond to help us to see how utterly and completely serious God is about redemption in Christ Jesus. He goes under oath. I love that decree part, don't you? In verse 17, the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose. The promise of the unchangeable character of his decree. He guaranteed it with an oath. I love that. There's probably a Puritan who wrote a whole book on that or like an eight-volume set just on that one statement because that's the kind of thing you could write a whole volume on if you started unpacking the theology of it and how great God is in his salvation. Wrapping it all up, verse 19 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope, read sureness, right? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, this is bizarro mundo, okay? Just for a fancy word to make it up for the day. He's mixing metaphors, but it works. He's taking the nautical metaphor of an anchor that is sure and steadfast. No matter what the seas bring, there is stability. No matter how tumultuous it is, there is stability. This is an anchor that holds definitively. And in the context of life that is hard, life that is difficult, life that is bringing persecution, there is an anchor that holds. And then he starts using priest terminology, and now we have the anchor in the temple. But it works, doesn't it? That he is that kind of priest. Steady, sure, steadfast, because what we need ultimately is not stability in an ocean. What we need ultimately is perfect atonement that sticks and lasts. 
sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll learn all about Melchizedek in chapter 7. We're going to save that for chapter 7 and not this morning. I take you back mentally where we started. Jesus is saying some really hard things. John chapter 6. And many of his disciples left. And he says to his remaining core, Do you want to go away also? Having learned from Abraham this morning, the ludicrous nature of leaving the God who swears under oath to bring salvation promise. Let's also learn from a fisherman named Peter. Simon Peter answered Jesus and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a great time contemplating these things that we've considered this morning. In some ways, they seem so distant and so far away because we're not in Palestine and we're not in the first century. And in other ways, they seem so very much 21st century in the here and now because there's still persecution and there's still a cost to be counted. And Jesus is still the perfect righteous one who perfectly atones for sins once and for all. I pray for spiritual growth in the body of Christ at Omaha Bible Church. And I pray for a motivated passion to persevere. And that we would see these things happening in our midst and we would be overwhelmed by these things and it would cause us to want to worship you and praise you for your great work on our behalf. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for taking care of us, even by giving us your word this morning. It is a great feast for us, and it is great for us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.